0: If there's one thing about me you'll learn, it's that I love telling stories, and there's no story I love telling more, or that I think I'm better at telling is my own. If you really wanted to, you could go down to my introductions episode, which would be episode one uh, at the beginning of the feed, but to be completely honest with you, that is an episode that represents the old way that I wanted to podcast, which was to make it episodic, like a radio show. The way I want to do it now is to come to you much more conversationally. Like there's no setup, there's no production to it. It's like if you were sitting there with your friend and you were just discussing something, an idea, an event, an occurrence. And as I tell you my story tonight, I acknowledge that in the world there's a lot of goings-on, goings-on. Right now, Donald Trump has been served as fourth indictment, this time in Georgia. Maui has effectively burned to the ground. I'm being facetious, but also not. I actually released a reel today about a Native American group known as NAGA that wrote to the Washington commanders and said, hey, you better change that name back, otherwise, uh, you know, we're going to Bud Light you. I acknowledge that there is a lot more going on than that. A lot more. And a lot of it deserves to be talked about. But for those of you who might be new here, I hope to achieve a few things with retelling you my story tonight. One, to get a better idea of where I come from. If there's something I've always been interested in when it comes to characters in my stories or to any story that I follow or love, I always like knowing where those characters come from. Two, kind of how it led to where we are today. A little bit better of an idea of how I became this person. You, for some reason, like to listen to me talk about what goes on in the world, politics, current events, how it helps you grow, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And finally, what I really want to do is kind of like lay the groundwork of what I want this experience between you and I to be remembered as. So without further ado, let's begin. I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis is a place that I've always said is like a melting pot of the best and worst parts of Chicago, Memphis, and New Orleans. We're a decent sized city, but we're not very big. We're definitely not as big as Chicago. But there is that big sports city, big urban community feel here, much like in Chicago. And also, like all three of those places, St. Louis is pretty dangerous. It's something that's both a blessing and a curse that the people around here are so tough. And when I say that, it's because when you come to this city, and you're not from here, the first thing you hear about how bad the crime is. And a lot of those things are true, but it's not the way you think of it. Because we're a very solid community, much like a smaller place like Memphis that has a little bit more of a southern feel to it. St. Louis largely has that too. We're very communal. Yeah, we like to fight with each other. Yes, I will be classist against you when I figure out where you went to high school, whether it was a better one than me or otherwise. But more than anything else, we definitely have a little bit of that kind of dirty country feeling to it. Like New Orleans, there's a lot of French-American culture here. There's a lot of Creole culture here. There's a reason our Mardi Gras is the second biggest in the country. And when you look at how that births a person and kind of the world that they grow up in, you know, you've got your good and bad parts. You know, when you start dealing with the northeast and southern parts of St. Louis, you're dealing with rougher parts of St. Louis. Not all bad, but they're definitely rough to an extent. I spent most of my early years in the southernmost part of St. Louis, which is the hill and more so South City. These areas are, again, they're not the best places to grow up. They're tough. They're dangerous. And you realize really quick why people get scared of the idea of coming to St. Louis. It's quite honestly something that even being the age I am now of 30, this city still very much scares me. But much like other St. Louisans, I take a weird, sick kind of appreciation of understanding that this is the quote unquote most dangerous city in America per capita. Actually, Missouri has like three of those top dangerous cities uh, in the US, which are St. Louis, Springfield, and I believe Independence, which is part of Kansas City. I was raised in effectively a single parent household. My mom waited tables and bartended most of my life, and my birth father was not really around. He was kind of a substitute parent on the weekends, even though my mom didn't want to send me over there and I didn't want to go over there. When you're raised in a split parent situation, I don't want to get this confused to any of you who never had to grow up like that. You tend to pick a favorite parent. I really didn't like my birth father. He seemed like someone who didn't really want to be a parent. He liked to gamble. He liked to run around with women. He didn't really take responsibility for anything. When he was much younger, he was addicted to speed and a bunch of other things, and he got in a lot of trouble for selling them. And There's parts of his past I don't know, and to be frank with everybody, I don't want to know because I would eventually walk in those shoes years later. My mom was someone who did a lot with what she had because not only was she taking care of me, but when her mom, my grandmother, who would watch me on the nights where she had to work, which was typically four nights a week, she also had to take care of her mom It was a weird statement about the cycle of life that when you're born, your parents, they do everything for you up until the time you're an adult. Eventually, you evict yourself from their household or better yet, they kick you out. (laughs) Definitely was my situation. And then as the years go by, you realize that you have to take care of them and possibly do everything for them too, like they did when you were a child. Mom, if you hear this, I know how hard you worked to raise me, and I know how hard it was to balance those things. Not just raising me, not just taking care of your mom, but also taking care of yourself and making sure you had everything you wanted and needed out of life. And I understand that not all those things were treated equal. My grandma was someone who just didn't treat my mom very well. She would largely be thankless and unapologetic, mean-spirited, old-world, I could go on and on and on about all the horrible things she did, but it doesn't change the fact that my mom still put her best foot forward to take care of everybody. As a kid, I was very sensitive. Not having a strong male role model around, at least not very consistently, and as well as seeing my mom work her ass off and not being able to spend the time with her that either one of us would have liked or appreciated, I was very susceptible to crying and getting picked on and getting beat up. And It was something that would follow me for the rest of my life is that I was often smaller than everybody. And back in those days, everyone knew how to get under my skin. A lot of people ask why I can be so sassy, or why I can be so dry, or why my sense of humor is the way it is. Well, that's why. I believe it's a deep seated way of dealing with getting picked on when I was younger. I didn't play sports, I didn't do clubs. I didn't really care about the idea of fitting in. I was a weird kid. I really liked cartoons. I really liked cereal. I liked comic books. I was fascinated with certain little things that were pop culture of my day. I really loved Spider-Man and Batman. Those were guys who I really, really identified with. But it was something that I wanted to be a superhero growing up, and it's because I heard these stories of these young men rising to the occasion and becoming the best versions of themselves, and changing the world. But that's the thing about comic books. That's the thing about fantasy. You still have to come back to the real world. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that the real world in Southside St. Louis is a place that when you think about it, raising your kids there probably isn't your first option that you want. My mom eventually moved me out of the city and into the county, where I spent most of my youth there. Pretty much from the ages of three till about 19 when I eventually left for college, I was a county kid and I went to public school. And again, I was this kid who it was really easy to bother me and make me cry and I would get bullied and I would get picked on. And when I eventually switched schools from fourth grade to fifth grade, I kind of realized that like that was only going to get me so far. I learned how to kind of at least talk back. And then one faithful day when I was in sixth grade, I remember my mom having a talk with me. For some reason, the cosmic irony of it being just weeks before, she says, honey, if anyone ever gives you shit or tries to pick on you, just fucking slug them. (laughs) Sorry to snitch, mom, but it is true. And parents out there, I have to agree with what my mom said. You have to teach your kids to fight back. Never throw the first punch, never be a bully, but stand up for your damn self. And I remember the first time I stood up for myself and it felt so good. Some kid, I never even knew him, just randomly one day in sixth grade, he was a seventh grader, he started picking on me and I was just like, what did I do to you? And then eventually before I knew it, like he touched me and I just pushed him. I think I hit him in the face once. I think that day was the day that Murph was born as you know him today. I can be combative, I can be feisty, I can be a little, a little man complex. I don't like being picked on and I don't like being dismissed. And effectively, you know, it didn't go anywhere, I can admit that. We both got put in headlocks by the woodshop teacher, his name was Mr. Simpson, shout out Berkeley Middle School. And from there, I just kind of started to figure life out a little bit by a little bit. It's a story I've never really told, but it taught me a lesson, is that when you let people pick on you, when you let people get a rise out of you, they're going to. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. It's a sense of power that people get out of you. When you stand up for yourself, they're going to check you. Well, check them right back. That's something that we're dealing with these days, is that there's a lot of people out there who like to talk a big game, and they don't think anyone's coming for them. No, no, no. Everybody's fair game. Everybody has an angle you can pick on them. The fact of the matter is, though, is that if we just treat each other well, you don't have to deal with that. Well, most people don't treat each other well. And as I got older, I really didn't treat myself any better. And the best denominator of how you're going to treat anyone else is how you treat yourself. Truth of the matter is, is, I was a lazy kid. When I got out of about seventh grade, my grades really started to slip. Truth be told, actually, basically... My first two years of middle school, I could go to every class and I would just get an A. But about eighth grade, I really kind of figured out that I didn't have a passion for school. It was about this time that I turned into a teenager that my grandma eventually passed, and that was a lot to take on, not only for my mom and me, but for our whole family. The mid-2000s, my grandma passing away, me becoming a teenager, it was a perfect storm of me just stopping caring about anything which if for some reason you listen to this podcast and you're in your teenage years, that's a bad and a good thing. It's a bad thing because you should care about what goes on around you and you should be involved in your community, but also it's a good thing because you are a kid and you have at least the whimsy, you have at least the opportunity to get a pass from the adults in your life to not care about things. Now, the difference is is that my mom tried to get me involved, but I just didn't want to be involved with anything. Nothing interested me. School didn't interest me anymore. I The only thing I actually really cared about at that point was music. I became a huge audio junkie, a huge just know-it-all about every band, about every artist. The first album my mom ever got me was Green Day's American Idiot, and that was the first time I actually got turned on to any political notions of any kind. And... And as much as I do believe Green Day's best days are behind them musically, and at this point in life, I don't agree with just about anything they've had to say about politics in the common era, you know, save for some things about George W. Bush I agree with. It was just such a cool time to listen to that music. And it was so just interesting, pretending I had half a notion about what went on in the world. And, you know... I was still listening to Green Day in like 2006, and all my friends in middle school were quick to tell me, "Nah, man, they're sellouts. They're trash. If you if you don't listen to anything, if you listen to anything besides Dookie, your opinion is pits." It was really that point in life that I kind of bought into the idea of being a little shit. It wasn't so much that I would bother people, but I went out of my way to be different. I went out of my way to be weird. I went out of my way to figure out what I really liked and who I really liked doing things with. And I bounced around for a bunch of different friend groups and none of them really felt like home. And eventually I started to find some people. And the cool thing is, is that a few of those people are still with me today. To any of the younger listeners I may have or might potentially have, when you hear this, just know that you're going to lose a lot of the friends you make throughout life. Hell, I've lost... Probably 90% of the people I've ever called friends, either because we no longer talk, we had a falling out, or one of them, unfortunately, passed away. I have a lot of those, unfortunately. The friends I made, they accepted me for being someone who wanted to be different. The one person I'd like to acknowledge right now is Amanda, because you've been my best friend since we were what I call 13 and ugly We were so mid-2000s suburban kids, and this person watched me grow up from being the nerdy little music geek into being the person who talks to you today, the person you get your political views and news and current events from, and you're still my best friend in the world, and I love you so, so much. Thank you for sticking by me with all these years. Once we got to high school, it was a lot of the same. I was lazy, I was intolerable, and I kind of started talking a lot more. You got to understand, like in middle school, I was actually rather quiet. I kind of kept to myself, and that was weird, and now that I was in high school, well, I like to talk, and I like to talk about weird things. I like to talk about music, of course, but I also like to talk about like horror movies, and I would eventually start to throw in some things that were more political and goings-on, but i eventually found out that i had some talents that i didn't know i had i started getting into theater and drama i started getting into journalism and writing and creative writing i started writing stories and i actually had plans to write books now i didn't finish them because i had no idea how to write a decent plot beginning middle and end rising action good characters with thematic resonance like i it just i was copying all my favorite writers and all my favorite screenwriters, you know, guys like David Fincher, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, these directors who just impacted me so much when I was a kid, but something started to really kind of fester and stew inside me. Now, I had had problems sleeping my whole life because my father, when I visited him, he would take me to a racetrack. He would spend our weekends together, taking me to a racetrack to watch him gamble He'd eventually give me some quarters to go play the games, but this really messed up my circadian rhythms as a kid. And as I started getting into my mid to late teen years, especially in the summertime, I would stay up till four or five in the morning and just maybe get a couple hours of sleep. It was really weird. I started thinking about these existential crises. Where is life going to take me? What do I really have coming? What's coming for me? Like, am I doing the right thing? am I going to be happy? I really became obsessed with the idea of not being average. But the only problem was, is that I was just doing average kid things. Basically when school was over, school was over. I got involved in some clubs. I liked doing journalism. It was it was great. I only did one year of theater. I kind of just became a dude though. I, I started dealing with my first bout of imposter syndrome, which was You realize that you're yearning to do something bigger than yourself actually requires action. And I don't know very many adults who take action on the things in their life that pull them towards it. That's just, hey, there's a calling for you. You should take it. I knew I could communicate well. In the theater, the performances... You know, that kind of went hand in hand for growing up in restaurants like I did. I I liked talking to people. It's one of the reasons I actually made the title of this podcast, Can We Talk About This? Because a big premise of this is communication with people who actually care about what I have to say. Why you do, I'm still not sure, but I'm going to continue to give it to you. And as I got to my later years of high school, I realized that with bad grades, I've been like a 2.5 grade point average student my whole life, I think like 2.2 in college, not very much going on as far as what i wanted to accomplish in life i was well on my way to just not doing anything and what was worse is that when i would look into the mirror i would see my birth father's uh, i would see my birth father's resemblance more than ever it was in the cheekbones it was in the droopiness of my eyes it was it was it was the way i said things it was even the way i go huh cuz he says it the exact same way I was this kid who I saw as a nerdy guy who didn't fit in. I had my friends and they loved me and accepted me for who I was, but I really started to not like who I was. Not because I wasn't a jock, not because I wasn't taller, not because of this idea that I was still getting picked on, because at this point I wasn't really getting picked on. And shout out to my high school. Melville High School is a place where, you know, I'll never send my kids there. I will never send my kids to a public school at this point. Actually, homeschool is like, Option number one, if I'm being straight with y'all. But it was a place where most people got along. Most people were friendly to each other. And no matter how different you were, as long as you didn't say anything slick to one another, most people actually had your back. But those late nights where I would stay up, all the problems I started having with authority, it was because I hated myself. I've always had this feeling inside of me that because I got picked on as a child and because, yeah, my birth father was not really the greatest male role model in my life, and yes, because my grandma mistreated a lot of people, but for some reason treated me really good, I didn't think that I was worthy of self-love, and I still struggle with that today. I got accepted to a couple colleges, but quite honestly, my parents had a good point, my mom and my stepdad who has been an amazing male role model. Let me add that in. This dude was a Marine, is a Marine. He was an entrepreneur. He worked in health insurance, and he treats my mom like a princess to this day. They've been married for 20 years, and that man is my father. Just going to say that for the record. But I started fighting with the both of them really hard. I started to realize that being the good nerdy kid was only a piece of who I was and I was really scared to grow up. To be frank with most people who know me today as this vicious stoner um and as a guy who had a very hard partying streak when I was in my early to mid 20s, I really didn't start getting off the porch until I was about 19, 18, somewhere around there. I smoked weed twice in high school and I was deathly afraid of it. I thought it was going to ruin my whole life, you know. And I, you know, I'm perfectly capable of ruin, ruining my own life. Thank you. I don't need weed for that. But I started to be like, hey, you know, maybe it is okay to drink, even though I'm not legal. Maybe smoking a little bit of weed is fine, even though it's illegal still in 2010, 2011, Missouri. And boy, did I start having real fun. The only problem was, is that with all the fun that I was having, I started trying to fit in a lot more. Now, I want you to acknowledge this with me real quick. I think fitting in is fine. I think trying to fit in is a bad thing. Trying to make people your people as opposed to letting people become your people, becoming other people's people. There's a huge discretion there in intent. And the part that I really bought into is that people started seeing me as cool. I started being able to talk to girls a lot easier. I started being able to hold my own when it came to pounding 30 beers, a fifth of liquor, a whole eighth of weed, which back in those days was sure a lot. It was 60 bucks too. Yeah. You, you had those white boy grand prices. He was paying 20 a G my guy. You wouldn't know Venmo there neither. <laughs> I really bought into being kind of like the bad guy. And it transpired when my parents said they gave me too much freedom and me and my mom started really having some bad issues. And she kicked me out. She kicked me out multiple times and I came back multiple times. Sometimes it was because I needed a place to stay, and sometimes it was because we both were in the wrong and we could admit to it. I served couches for, I think, the whole summer of 2012, and I bought into it. It was amazing. It was one of the coolest times in my life, was to say that I was homeless for a whole summer, and I was partying, and I was having having all the fun you could have while going to a community college. I was literally getting paid to go to a community college. And here's the thing. College money is fine, but these people were giving me so much money to pay for school that I was walking back with a refund, just straight from the government. This is when I became a little bit more politically inclined. I was listening to a lot of Bill Maher. I was watching a lot of his show. And because I literally had money that kind of just sprouted out of nowhere, at least that's what I thought it was, I started learning about how debt can be an effective mover. For creating profit and revenue. I had a homie at the time, and I asked him for a front on some weed. And he actually gave me my normal order back then was an eighth, which is 3.5 grams. But instead, he's like, Hey, I'm gonna give you a quarter, which is seven grams. It's only gonna be thirty bucks more. I was like, Bro, I don't have, you know, ninety bucks to give you. He goes, No, no, no. You're gonna sell a part of it, you're gonna make a profit, and then you're gonna give me back the money. I was like, wait, what? He goes, bro, no, you are done just paying for weed. I am tired of you always buying an eighth. You're going to get a quarter before you know it. You're going to buy a half. And before you know it, you're going to get an ounce. And I was like, what happened to me? Two years ago, I was scared to smoke weed and now I'm selling it. I thought hard on it for about 10 minutes. And then before you know it, I was high as shit and I was I was astounded at how fast I was able to sell this weed. I thought this was going to take me like a week. And he even said a week is too long. I was like, all right, cool. So I called a couple people. They gave me money. I gave him money back by the end of the day. The end of the day he gave me a half ounce. I had a lot of friends who, even though they were maybe 18 to 20 years old, they were moving pounds of weed. I had no idea. I always thought that weed was this thing that would ruin your life, but the truth is is that anything can ruin your life. These same friends were also really getting deep into Xanax, and that is something that thankfully I've never had an affinity for. I've taken Xanax three times in my life, and I shit you not, (laughs) I have pissed the bed all three times I've taken it. I don't like that. That's not fun. I'm cool. (laughs) You guys enjoy. Actually, please don't. If you hear this, please, if you were partying with Xanax, benzos, pills, please stop. I saw these same friends of mine who we were just, you know, kicking back beers and chugging booze. And, you know, we would eventually, you know, tamper with some other things. They started really getting deep into the hard drugs. You'd wake up and there'd be a line of something waiting for you. And eventually I started playing in too, because remember, I wanted to fit in. I didn't want to just be the same Murph. I wanted to be the Murph that no one knew. I wanted to be a monster. Dr. Jordan Peterson says all the time, you should be a monster and then you should learn how to control it. I let it control me basically from the time that I was 18 to 23. Because within maybe a year, me and my best friend from high school that isn't Amanda, Amanda—it was a dude who I've referenced in past episodes, A Healthy Dose of Perspective, part one, if you feel like listening to it, This was a guy who wanted to be a federal agent. He wanted to be part of like task force that like busted people in child trafficking rings. This guy was my just day one homie. And we basically just operated out of his mom's basement until I went away to Springfield for college. We had people break in. We had people hold him up. We had The place raided before by the St. Louis Task Force, mostly because it was a duplex and the people living next door were tired of the smell of weed and people coming and going at all hours of the day. The thing is, is that when the door got kicked in, we still didn't get caught because for some reason, I guess God was just on our side, something like that. I eventually started going to Springfield, Missouri a lot because that's where my friends who taught me how to hustle, well, they went to a rival high school and that rival high school a lot of the people who graduated from there went to Missouri State. I didn't have the grades to go to Mizzou. I really didn't want to go to Semo, which I did get accepted into when I was in high school. And there was just something about Springfield. There was just something about the vibe there. It was everything that I wanted from a college town. And after going there for a couple weekends in a row, I said, "Yeah, I'm going to spend a few. I'm going to spend some time here." Eventually, my mom kicked me out for I think the third time in maybe two years. And by this point, I mean I was making all kinds of money. I was, I was walking around with 10 bands, two, three pounds of weed, messed up on whatever. And when I say on whatever, it's because oftentimes I can't remember a lot of things from those days. The truth is, is that kids, when they get a hold of weed and booze, especially, they're really doing a lot to stunt their cognitive development. So if you're listening to this and you are partying super hard before the age of 26, tone it down a little bit. Really tone it down a little bit. I know you're young. I know you're having fun. But it's okay to take a night off. It's okay to say no. It's okay to not mix things. It's really when you start mixing things is when something becomes volatile. It's like a chemical reaction. I really started having fun with things that made me go fast. Combining them with liquor. Combining them with weed. I remember the first time that I did acid and molly at the same time. It was... I was going through a vicious breakup, and I was so heartbroken, and I was like 20 years old, 21 years old, and this was right after Mike Brown got shot here in St. Louis, and we were at the Wiz Khalifa show, and just how fun my night went to how horrible my night went in a matter of like minutes, that shit stayed with me for a long time. I started really, really getting back into the self-hatred where I would go on these huge trips, psychedelic trips, drug-induced trips, alcohol-induced trips, and I would call and text people from my past, and I would tell them how much I hated them and how much I wanted bad things to happen to them. And eventually, to a lot of these people, we came to blows. And some of them I could have definitely been more of a man about, and some of them a lot of people got what they had coming to them. Everyone's alive, no one's dead. I look back on those days, and I, I have a lot of remorse because... I wasn't doing well in school, yet I was still paying for it. I had been raised by such a quality woman, but I wasn't treating women well. And the, the little kid that was inside of me who was sensitive but had a good heart, I was, I was burying him every day. But I was having a lot of fun. And at this time, our country had never been more political. And I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm really talking about the second term of Obama. Whereas the first term of Obama, he was super ineffective, really didn't get anything good done. His second term, he dropped all the unity and all the, yes, we can, stuff, and he started getting into, well, this country's systemically racist. The reason I can't get anything done is because uh, a bunch of people have a racist tendencies to not let good policy go through. Well, no, you were actually an awful president. You divided people more than you united them. And to be completely honest, as much as I despise the presidency of George W. Bush, you were just such a sad sack compared to the person we thought you were going to be, Barack. So one of the worst presidents in my lifetime, one of the most divisive people in my lifetime. And that self-hatred was something I bought into a lot because of the messages that he propagated. You started noticing that it was cool to like not like white people, to not like yourself for being white, which was one of the craziest things because at the same point in time, I joined a fraternity And I'm not saying fraternities are pro-white, but far and away, most fraternities start in Southern schools like Ole Miss or Virginia or whatever. And they typically are a lot more conservative. So I was this conflict of, hey, I am a capitalist because I sell drugs and because I believe in creating my own destiny. But also I was over here and says, the system has its hooks in me and I am the way I am. And there must be some racism to me or some deep-seated bigotry or prejudice. But not really. I got along with everybody. It was a facade. I started blaming everyone around me. I started blaming the government a lot more too. I started blaming white people. I started blaming Donald Trump. I started talking a whole lot of shit I knew nothing about. Most people in college talk a whole lot of stuff they know nothing about, and I was no exception. I eventually, in college, I found a, I found a group of guys who were in a different fraternity these guys, they didn't trust me at first because I was the hustler from another fraternity that you would see dealing like blow at the bars or, you know, sending an ounce of weed in your mailbox or whatever. But we built a really good relationship and we built a really good connection and we ended up living together. And in 2016, my business had turned into like, just to be frank with you, something I never thought it could be, 2016, I call the the peak of my my bad years, the peak of my, my piece of garbage years, the peak of bad me. It was a really interesting time because around this time, I started doing drives out to Colorado from Springfield, Missouri, which is a 14-hour drive both ways. I had people who would finance me, and I would take their money, and I would go buy from growers and Uh, wholesalers of weed out in Colorado. When you talk about feeling limitless, I had never felt more limitless than that. I had actually not really done a lot of traveling until my second decade of life, which I remember the night I turned 20. I did it out in Panama City Beach on my first spring break. Well, now I'm 23 And I've traveled all across the country. I've driven to California to buy weed. I I drove out to Colorado, I think maybe a dozen times in the summer of 2016. I've probably driven out to Colorado and been there close to almost three dozen times. I was making a lot of money. I was having a lot of fun. But I was also doing a lot of hard drugs. And I was also not taking care of myself. And I was becoming fat and I was becoming lazy and I was becoming sloppy. And eventually you end up getting caught when you least expect it. It didn't matter how much cocaine I was putting on my nose. It didn't matter how much lean I was drinking. It didn't matter how much lean I combined with Molly to go fast and slow this crazy euphoria all at the same time. I hated myself. And eventually I got caught on Black Friday of 2016 at like 3 a.m. and I had a bunch of stuff in the car I shouldn't have had on me. The thing is, is that I was already on probation though. I got caught for the first time in 2013 when I moved down to Springfield. It was it was the dumbest time of my life. And I remember sitting in that jail cell in November of 2016, and them taking the string ties out of my jacket and the shoestrings off my shoes Which, if you don't know why they do that, so you don't kill yourself. They're pretty smart, because I was thinking about killing myself. Now, mind you, I probably could have snapped my own neck if I really wanted to, but let's be honest, I wasn't about to do that. I remember calling my homie, who I had been coming up with all this time. All my other friends from college had basically, you know, we'd all dipped out on each other, fight, lose contact, people die, Because people overdose on drugs, not for any other reason. And I was like, bro, I am in so much trouble. And I just remember him being like, yeah, yeah, you are. I remember calling my mom and she was like, what the fuck did you do now, dude? And I was like, I'll tell you when I get home. I never felt worse about myself until that day. I didn't quite learn my lesson. I kept trying to party, I kept trying to play it off, I kept trying to act like I had all the time and all the blessings in the world, but life was catching up to me. I remember talking to my probation officer and he goes, I'm going to treat you really differently if you don't pee clean in this cup. Thankfully, I know how to pass drug tests for weed, even with someone watching me going. It's a real fun story. I passed that drug test and it was about that time I realized I had to do things the right way. The only way I was ever going to stop hating myself is if I started to love myself. And loving yourself is harder. It's so much harder. To treat people well starts with treating yourself well. To operate at a high frequency means doing hard things. I was definitely afraid of going to the gym. I I had a little stint when I was really in my cokehead frat boy days where, you know, I got a little pump on. I looked decent in a tank top, but right when I got Into the justice system about the beginning of 2017, late 2016, I became a gym rat. I fell in love with pumping iron. I became a power lifter because squat bench and deadlift was something simple, and my little squatty ass could actually learn how to do it effectively. And I became good at it too. Within like two years, I built all kinds of crazy amounts of muscle and I got up to about a 500 pound deadlift just under a, no, I got to about 405 pound squat and I just touched 265 pounds on bench. When you have stubby arms, bench is not your friend. All power lifters out there, holla if you hear me. I started working jobs, multiple jobs at one time while going to school. And I started to really distance myself from the old, old friends that I still had who promoted that kind of lifestyle. In this life, you're going to have to make sacrifices and investments. And I haven't talked to that one friend since 2017 when I started to take my advice that I gave to the younger audience today. I started telling him, no, I don't want you to come down here with a bunch of coke. I don't want you to come down here so you can sell drugs. If you want to come down and hang out, we can go to the bars. That's cool. But like, no stupid stuff. That put a big wedge in between us. And we largely haven't talked since. But I started to feel really good about myself. My fat ass lost some weight. I had some money set aside. I was paying all my dues. I was pissing clean. And I eventually walked to graduation at Missouri State, but not before dropping out with three classes left to go. While I still don't have my degree, I at least was able to give my parents a college graduation. But the funny thing is, is that a college graduation doesn't mean fucking anything. I remember hysterically that there was a guy who got a lot of fame because he came to Missouri State's 2018 spring commencement and he didn't even go to school there. He got a cap and gown. And he walked to graduation. And he didn't even go to school there. He never paid a cent of tuition. I spent about another year in Springfield serving tables. A lot of those friends who I was living with who took me in, even though they we're part of a different fraternity, they all moved away. And I started realizing that when I went to the bars, I didn't recognize anyone anymore. I kept thinking about how I was living night to night serving tables, managing restaurants, washing dishes, getting up early to clean the restaurant, a job that no one wanted to do, but I did, because it got me a little extra money. I saw how small the ceiling was on this place, and I was like, I gotta do something else. But what? Not only was I in love with fitness, but I fell in love with the personal development industry. I loved Gary Vee back in those days. I loved C.T. Fletcher. You know, it's still your motherfucking set. It was the hardest thing, man. I was watching things like Omar Isuf, Bradley Martin, the Hodge twins before they were political. Oh, you want to build some muscle, man? Yeah. It's good. It's real good. Get the fuck off me. God, they were great. They were still great. But there was a guy who I thought just blew him all out of the water. He, he was intense. He seemed angry. He was tough. He was middle American. And he talked about how you do one thing is how you do everything. And he actually ran the little vitamin shop. He owned and operated his first ever vitamin shop, supplement store, supplement superstore in Springfield, Missouri. That guy was Andy, Andy Fursella. When I found his content, I realized that there was someone from my hometown who got started in that college town that I was in, who was doing all these crazy things. He was wealthy, he was notable. He made the supplements I liked and the, his first ever store is where I found them. I started working retail at supplement superstores, but I only lasted about three weeks because when you get moved into those companies, you have to do a lot of work that is not just being at your office space or being in your store. You have to educate yourself. You have to make sure that you are doing your due diligence to bring the best version of yourself to every interaction to every single person you talk to. Well, it didn't work out there, and while I spent about another year in the restaurant, I eventually connected with a homie, his name is Matt, who I went to high school with. We hadn't talked in several years, but we always always were friendly with each other, and we always had a good sense of humor with one another, ever since we were 14. I remember this dude was like the first guy I ever saw wear a pair of jorts that was my age, and I've never let him live it down. I get it. I don't like jorts. Most people do. Whatever. And he worked at First Form. First Form was the brand of supplements that I really liked to buy at supplement superstores. Andy Frisella owned and operated both. He was the CEO of both, the MF CEO, if you will, which means motherfucking CEO. And tonight's a little special. I'll be doing a little bit more cursing tonight. Most most episodes I won't be. And I asked him, I'm like, hey man, if I wanted to work at first form, what would that be like? He goes, Well, first thing, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. He goes, I need you to be okay with like being humble. I need to know you're not going to get me in trouble and make me look stupid. Uh, you know, are you okay with working in a warehouse for $12 an hour, starting at like 5 a.m., like six days a week, maybe seven days a week? I'm like, yeah, whatever, sure, let's go. He wasn't expecting that. I don't really blame him for not expecting that because most people don't like blue-collar work. I don't even like blue-collar work, and I've done a ton of it. But the guy who I really believed in, Andy, his story... All the things he was able to achieve, I was like, well, why wouldn't I want to be closer to that? Now, the truth is is that I had some very pseudo progressive sensibilities still. I didn't necessarily like the United States of America as an idea. I kind of started buying into the idea that it's a terrible place that is racist and awful and such and such and such and such and interchangeable buzzword terms that make people feel really smart and good about themselves. When you get to First Form, it's a very pro-American company. Supplement Superstores is a very pro-American company. Very pro-community companies, too. I didn't like it at first. Yeah, I got to see Andy every day. I got to meet his brother, Sal. I got to meet Sal's kids and their, their their families. And I got to meet all these incredible people who would help me grow up. But I was stubborn. I started reverting back to the old me, which was a weird dude who liked to be by himself. I would, I would do anything that I could by myself. I would turn on music when I packed boxes. I would go write cards and notes in a back corner with no one to sit by me. And in fact, and eventually my warehouse manager, Brian, he came over to me and goes, dude, you're not going to make it if you keep doing stuff like this. He was right. I had to get bigger than myself. So I started buying in. It was tough. Not only is this a hard place to work, Not only is the standard everything, but I was still working through a lot of the demons of who I was. My fitness was good, but I gave myself a pass on my diet. That's not good. I was well-read, and I did a lot of research on things, and I live on YouTube even to this day. I wasn't reading books like how I should have been. And my ability to keep to my word was something that I really needed to work on. There were a lot of people who kept me accountable. Not least of all, was a guy named Cody Klein, who had been with Andy almost 20 years at this point, 15 years. And he started basically in a storefront like me. And then he moved on to cold calls. And he's been with the companies ever since. And he's the director of athletes there. He took me aside and he says, hey, just so you know, it's going to be harder than you think. And you don't know nothing. I remember the first day I asked him for advice, and this guy basically talked my ear off for 30 minutes about how I wasn't nothing because he thought he was going to discourage me. But that same kid who realized that he was a little shit when he realized he was a little shit, he also realized that he could put his money where his mouth was. Basically, I did 75 hard, which is Andy's mental toughness program. If you've never done it, everyone can benefit from it. I crushed transformation challenges where we get ourselves physical results and help other people get physical results. I read every book I was told to read. I did every assignment I was told. I I, I helped Cody out in ways that literally even got me told, hey, if you're not invited over to this part of the warehouse, you need to get out of here, kid. And eventually COVID happened. The thing that is so remarkable about the pandemic is that that time is when I really became so loyal to First Form because... Even though we tried to do the social distancing, even though we were working around the clock, 10-man shifts, because that's all we could really have in the warehouse, those arbitrary rules that were basically made up by a five-year-old, or the five-year-olds who run the CDC, the thing I love so much about First Form is they took a bunch of warehouse guys, a bunch of hourly wage employees, and they paid them full-time for working no more than 25 hours a week. Most companies don't care about their employees at all. Most. Most. First Form Supplement Superstores, they'd put on for us so hard. And from then, I basically became a lifer. I dropped out of college. I'd been an awful student most of my life. I had a conviction on my record for drug possession, and I almost hit Andy Frisella with my car about five weeks in, and no, I was not smoking a joint, thank you. I was going home to smoke a joint, this is something Andy likes to do. He's like, this dude, his second day was leaving work, smoking a fucking joint. And he almost hit me with this fucking car. No, it was like my fifth week. We had met multiple times and I didn't have the balls to smoke weed at First Form HQ. I was going home to smoke weed because I didn't think anyone there smoked weed. I was wrong. A lot of people there smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> I did 75 hard again, two months after the first time completing it, and I got crazy good results. I saw that the world around me was getting worse. I saw the United States was getting worse. I saw that mediocrity, I saw that this idea of victim culture and cancel culture were becoming really, really prominent, and I started to hate it. To be completely honest, this is about the time AOC started to really build a name for herself. And the combination of that Bernie Sanders getting screwed by the DNC in the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton still walking around free for some reason, and me working at such a pro-patriotic company that did more for me than government ever could, I became a very patriotic person. I fell actually very deeply in love with the idea of my country and making it better. And this is really when my physical results started to take off, my endurance started to take off, my relationship with the company started to foster into me not just having a job, but having a career where I worked in the department that is largely sales and building salespeople, all because I proved myself not only to Cody, not only to my warehouse manager, not only to Andy, but to myself. There's only one way to lead, and that's by example. It's Lombardi, Lou Holtz. Great coaches are quoted throughout this place. I built a career in a matter of only a few years where... When you looked at me in Springfield, I was lucky to maybe bring in thirty thousand dollars a year, serving tables, living in a college town. It was very cheap. Within only a couple years, I got right to the precipice of about six figures, a hundred grand. And I traveled and I worked six, seven days a week, even if I didn't have to. I would talk on the phone for more than anyone would have ever expected me to. And I wasn't even the top performer there. Don't let me gas myself up. There are a lot of people there, still there, who still run circles around the work that I did then. Everyone's trying to compete with everybody. But the thing that I started to really love was social media this big mouth of mine started to find its way onto cameras. And it all stems back to a conversation I first had with Andy the day I did my karaoke. Because back in the old days of old HQ, you had to do karaoke. All the new guys or all the new girls would get up at one time and do karaoke. I got up there and did Ain't Nothing But a G Thing by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. I knew every word. I, I missed one beat. But you know what? I can admit to that. Still, still the best karaoke in first form history. I remember right before that, I asked Andy, I'm like, hey, I think I want to get into public speaking. How do I do this? Has got a phone? Yeah. Has got Instagram? Like, yeah, I message you every day. (laughs) He goes, cool, start talking to your audience. You keep talking, you start talking that good stuff, eventually you'll get a break. Coming to you all where I am now, telling you about the person that I have become, is so much of Andy's influence. I eventually went on to do and still do public speaking events. Not as many as I'd like, but there's a lot going on still. I was with First Form for three and a half years. I had won multiple awards for my social media and for competing in transformation challenges. I had been acknowledged for doing some really cool things. I met some crazy, incredible people Navy SEALs, rock stars, influencers that I just could not imagine in my wildest dreams coming face-to-face with these people. I started building really great friendships with the people who I looked up to in leadership. And in the February of this year, I eventually left the company. My episode, Fear, is all about it. I loved everything about the company, but I realized that part of loving myself was Not working a job that I wasn't giving my all to. Now, don't get me wrong. I was an above average employee. I still believe that. And and I asked my leadership and they've largely co-signed that. But I knew I wasn't giving it my all. Summer of last year, I fell in love with working a camera. I always thought it was really difficult, it was really complex, and it's hard, and it it definitely has varying degrees of difficulty to it, but I, I started loving the idea of going to festivals and shooting the experience and sharing that with people, and it was about that time I actually really started, can we talk about this for the first time? My good friend Mark Joe showed me how to podcast, showed me how to record, showed me how to do this, showed me how to do that. That's where we are today. When I left First Form, I started a business known as Paradigm Media Solutions, which is still in its first year, but to tell you the truth, that's what I hope you can expect from me moving forward, is even though the story is still being written, I'm doing just fine. I own my own home now. I'm 30. I run my own business, and First Form is actually a client of mine. I do some contracting work there. I was gone for three months, and eventually they said, hey, come on back. Like your camera, not you. (laughs) It's been such a blessing to be able to be in the place that helped turn me into who I am, under the guidance of the man who really, really helped give me a second chance at life. And I'm still a convicted felon. I still travel a lot. I still love EDM festivals. I'm as pro-American as I've ever been because in this country that so many people love to throw a stone at and say it's so bad, it's so awful, it's so racist, yet people migrate here from all over the world to have a shot at the opportunity we have. Me, a guy who is below average in so many things, who is a convicted felon for drug possession, I've run I don't know how many half marathons, one full marathon, I've Done CrossFit. I've done Jiu Jitsu. I've power lifted. I've traveled across the country. I've done public speaking. I I've realized that the country gets better the better I make it, but I have to make myself better. And with this time that we're in, this time of life, this this crazy period of existence, I wanted to bring you guys a podcast. And I don't think all my episodes will be this long, if I'm being honest. But I wanted to bring you guys a podcast that not only told my story, but we continue to write the story together. Not of just me, not of just you, but of this place. America. Earth. Existence. My story as of this point here and now is that I am endowed with great purpose more than ever. There's an amazing quote by Emerson that goes, God will not have his will made manifest by cowards. A lot of things in life scare me, but I don't let them stop me now. As an entrepreneur, as a friend, as an American, as a son, as someone who wants the world around him to be better, I lived my whole life throughout a series of self-hatred, fear, anxiety, trying to fit in, falling down on my ass more times than I could admit, only to pick myself back up and admit that when I was wrong, it was my responsibility, but also when I was right, it was my responsibility. What I hope the legacy of this podcast is, is that it's something that influences people to figure out what it is that plagues them. And find the solution for it, be the solution for it. I'm not special by any means. I'm as garden variety as they come, with a few exceptions, especially when it comes to like communicating and verbiage and English and all that. I hope that you tell a friend about this podcast. And if you've made it this far, thank you. I appreciate it. I understand the story was long. My goals moving forward are simple. Try to put out a few episodes a week. I'm glad I didn't call this the Daily Murph Podcast because that would have been really bad marketing because I'm not putting out an episode a day. I struggled to get this one out tonight and I actually tried recording last night but it didn't go very well. I want people to hear this and realize that they can admit that they're wrong. I want people to admit that they're right and not rub it in people's faces. I want us to have a dialogue. That's why it's called Can We Talk About This? Not only because... Big government and big media try to silence us or feed us a narrative, but because we should be talking to each other. It's easier now more than ever just to keep your face in your phone and let the world pass you by. I hope you listening to this made you feel more heard and more understood than you've ever been. And you haven't even been able to say anything this whole time. You just had to listen to me. As I said in the beginning, I love telling stories. I've told that story to certain lengths and degrees so many times in the last six, seven years. I want to thank you for being a part of it. Good stories are memorable, and good stories are passed down from generation to generation. I leave you with a question before I ask you to kindly leave a rating, leave a review, share this with a friend share it to your story you may think you're insignificant you may believe that the world is the way that it is and that's all that we can do about it is accept it sure but are you so sure the end to your story has been written or are you just writing it off because you are scared to find out how much you actually love yourself and how much your story deserves to be told.